good. Turning to chapter 11 this morning. Chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10 this morning. You know, and just remember, I mean, obviously there's selected verses that, that we continue to exposit and to exegete as we go through, but isn't the entirety uh, of the, the book itself. I mean, literally it's just scratching the surface, especially when you're dealing with the book of Romans, which is such a bedrock and foundation to the Christian faith. Um, chapter 11, verse starting in verse 7. Reading from the King James Version. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest, the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David said, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we pray, God, that you would, you would give us a heart this morning that would be honest and sincere and desire to worship you and you alone. Lord, help us. Help us as the body of Christ stand for the word of God in such an age when it seems to be so much compromise, so much turning away, so much flippancy and foolishness going on today in the American Christian circles, Lord. Lord, help us, Lord, as we seek your face this morning, as we dedicate this service to the glory of Christ. Lord, I pray you'd be pleased to open up the hearts of your people. Lord, that you would loosen my tongue. You would give me the ability to proclaim your word. A fool such as I, Lord, that you would grant me the ability, grant me the power to be able to preach your word. Lord, unfold the mysteries of the scriptures to us this morning and empower us to go out into a, an apostate world with the light of Christ. I commit this time into your hands, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow their back always. Interesting here, Paul begins this verse with what then? What, what is Paul indicating when he, when he begins this verse with a what then? In actuality, it really means what is the conclusion from the whole? What is it that he's saying? What has already been said? 
What is he dealing with here? What is he reflecting upon? The wisdom of God. The word of God. He has been declaring the glories of Christ through the entirety of the previous chapters up until this point. He's dealing with Israel, the calling upon Israel, the identity of national Israel, the true identity of God's elect and God's people who have been bought and purchased by the blood of Christ. And here it's almost like Paul takes a breath, he takes a moment, and he says, so basically, what is the conclusion to all of this? What is the point to all of this? Everything that I have said, everything that I have proclaimed, what does it all mean? It is this, that Israel, in general, dealing with national Israel, hath not obtained that which he seeks. He has not obtained that very thing that he has been seeking for. Namely this, justification, acceptance with God, and the blessings consequent there, in other words, the gospel. This endless searching, this obsessive behavior, this idea of identity because that they were once called the people of God, that God had elected and selected a people unto himself nationally, that God himself built a people together, gave them the law. They were, they were basically what the, the Bible called the, the oracles of God. They had the prophets. They had the law. But yet they still were blind. They still were hardened. They were still deaf. But the Bible says, but the elect, those of them, only who repent and believe and therefore are chosen of God to be his people, have obtained it. The seeking, as the scriptures say in Romans, the end of the law is Christ. That this, this seeking, this drive to know God can only find its fulfillment and satisfaction covenantally in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The seeking of the saint, the true man or woman or child of God, comes to the end when he comes to Christ. His searching and his seeking is over. You have found the personification of all knowledge, of all wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ. You must not look any further. But Israel says that they were blinded by their own willful prejudice arising from their worldly spirit, which caused them to reject Jesus on account of his poverty, mean appearance, and state of suffering. The word here rendered, were blinded, signifies properly, were hardened, being a metaphorical expression taken from the skin of the hand made by hard labor. In general, it denotes in Scripture both hardness of heart and blindness of understanding. Very interesting. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Why not? Why haven't they obtained this? How come they haven't grabbed a hold of Christ? Well, the Bible seems to make it very clear, which can be very offensive to our sinful nature, is that God had decided to make it so. God himself had blinded 
those. He had deafened those. He had hardened those for His own glory. The apostles' meaning is this, that the unbelieving Jews, through the influence of their own evil dispositions, were so blinded that they did not discern the force of the evidence by which God confirmed the mission of His Son, and so were excluded from His covenant and church. In Romans 11, 8, 9, it says, Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see, and ears that should not hear. I'd like you to take note here and look at this, that God himself, the Bible says, has given them a spirit of stupor. God has given them a spirit of stupor. God has given those eyes that cannot see. God has given those ears that should not hear to this very day. And a reflection off from Psalm 69, 22 and 23, as he says, as David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. Not only uh, are they given a spirit of stupor and blindness and hardness, but also they are provoked. And also God himself says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling blocks and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I mean, this is just a very significant, weighty portion of Scripture really dealing with the reality of a sovereign God, dealing with God's secret decrees, God having the knowledge of who are His and who aren't His, God in His electing grace picking a people unto Himself. Even we see almost a retaliating spirit towards those in whom God has given a spirit of stupor. God has made them blind. God's made them hard. But then almost God's retaliating against them as if they're his enemies. Justifying this reality that they are enemies of God. Isaiah 29.10 says, For the Lord has poured... Get this image in your mind. The Lord has poured out on you, almost like a bucket of water. The Lord has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, like a, almost like a blanket over your head, namely the seers. Isaiah chapter 6, 9, and 10, he said, Go and tell his people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and actually understand with their heart and return and be healed. Some translations say return and be saved. I mean, these are really difficult, hard sayings especially to the carnal spirit that thinks that everybody deserves to be saved. This is foreign to Scripture. Everybody deserves to be damned. But the reality is God, by His grace, in His own mercy, by His own character, by His own secret decrees, decides 
by his own will whom he's going to save. Does he not have the right to choose? Do we dare sit back with our arms folded, holding God into contempt and telling God, you don't have a right to choose? That somehow I can improve on the justice of God? These scriptures can be very offensive. As a matter of fact, I remember reading a book about A.W. Pink, and he had quoted his wife, and she was, she explained that this idea of election was one of the most toughest points of the doctrines of grace for the, for the unregenerate heart to accept, even the regenerate heart to accept. I'll be honest with you. Um, when I first, by God's grace, discovered the doctrines of grace, can I just tell you, there was no offense in there whatsoever. There was no scrutiny on my part. There was no cynicism uh, from me as well. It was almost a, a an absolute relief. It was almost for me like I finally could land because the traditions and all the stuff that was served to me earlier in my Christian faith really was nothing more than tradition. But when there was five to 10 to 20 verses backing up each point of the doctrines of grace really gave me this satisfying feeling that God's in charge. God is ultimately in control. God is sovereign. And that whole doctrine is devastating in a good way. I mean, the sovereignty of God should so cripple us and leave us with Jacob's limp for the rest of our lives. It should be that striking to our lives, the reality that God is in control of everything from the beginning to the end, even personally in our lives, that it is God who elects, God who saves, and God who keeps us until the end. This should drive us to our knees, but also drive us out into the world with a spirit of bravery and fearlessness to run into any situation and declare the glories of Christ, knowing that God ultimately is in control of me. As Whitfield said, I'm invincible until God is through with me. And knowing full well, it is God who saves It is God who has created all humanity. It is God who holds all humanity together. What do you mean? Well, this person that I fear, do you realize that Christ himself literally holds the very molecules of that person together? People that we fear, do you realize that God himself is in control? When leaders take certain thrones or certain places of power? Do we understand that it is God who raises up and God who brings down? Do we understand this? Because if we understood this this biblical, not just idea, but reality that God is most certainly sovereign and in control of all things, it should give the saint a joyful rest that allows him to persevere, persevere through almost anything. Jesus said it himself to the Jews in his day, to the Israelites in his day, he said to them in Matthew 23, 24, he says, you blind guides. 
You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. He's dealing with their blindness right here. This is exactly what he's talking about. Jesus spoke of them also in the purpose of the parables. In Mark 4.10, he says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed, hear me now, see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. Romans 10, verses 17 and 18 says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard throughout the word, throughout through the word about Christ. But I ask, he says in 18, did they not hear? He says, of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth their words to the end of the world. And this is obviously speaking about God's general revelation, the reality of creation that testifies uh, to the reality of catastrophe and the judgment of God, that all men know inherently that there is a God. They know that God exists. The Bible says in Romans 1, 20, 21, that God has made it clearly seen to all creation. We are convinced by a lot of the books that we read today that somehow we've got to prove to the unbeliever that God exists, that we've got to provide enough evidence to the person who hates God to prove to them that God exists, which is absurd because the Bible says that God has made it clearly seen to all people. And this is dealing with his... Uh, this general revelation, which is, if you don't understand that, is that the gospel isn't known to them. The good news of Christ, God's special revelation, isn't known to them. But God's general revelation, this reality of the judgment of God, that God exists and God is holding them in judgment, is there. And the Bible says in Romans 2, 14 and 15, that we have a conscience, that we know right from wrong. We, are the, we either are excused by the blood of Christ or we stand what? Accused. The sinner stands accused. He is accused by God. His conscience continually, daily, hourly, every minute, accuses him of the judgment to come because he has violated the holy standard of God. He has sinned against deity and therefore he is accountable for violating the laws of God. He is a criminal. And what comes from committing crimes is what? The guilt of sin. The guilt of sin is upon him. It becomes a voice in his conscience that's amplified to him, letting him know, as Spurgeon says, it screams to the sinner, the wrath to come, the wrath to come, the wrath to come. It's there. And what does the world do? They numb it, right? They try to drown it out by music and by movies and about maybe booze and drugs or whatever else that we do as human beings to try to snuff out our own conscience because we don't want to hear about the wrath to come. We don't want to hear about judgment. We want to hear about good things and lovely things and that God accepts us just the way that we are. 
But the reality is foreign to Scripture. We must understand that God's Word has gone out through the entire world in judgment. And in Romans chapter 10, verse 16, he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And this is the point that he's trying to make. He's not saying, oh, that they have not obeyed another set of laws. For crying out loud, they had enough laws that they never obeyed. Okay? It's a twisting of Scripture when they take the law and they think that they can take the law and obey the law and be right with God by what they do. That is in complete opposition to the gospel. Do we understand that this morning? That there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God. There's nothing that you can do to keep yourself in right standing with God. And there's nothing that you can do that makes you more sanctified than the next person. But we must trust completely and totally in the finished work of Jesus Christ in what he has done in place for his people. And it is, it's his imputed righteousness that's grafted in, that's given to us freely and justifies us before a holy and righteous God. Pretty amazing stuff to me. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Obedience to the gospel is obedience of the heart. The Bible says that God gives us a new heart. And that new heart cannot help but obey God. It is the Spirit of God given to us. God calls His people unto Himself. He gives them a new heart and they respond to God. They respond and obey the gospel. And the gospel is this. When, when Jesus' disciples asked Him, they said, Lord, what must we do? What must we do to do the works of God? And what does He say to them? This is what you do. You believe upon me. Jesus Christ is declaring himself the finished work of God. I am the works of God, Jesus is saying. I am the finished work of God. I am your works that you need to be right with God. Trust in me and it is as, it is as if you have obeyed God perfectly. And he goes on to say, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Almost in astonishment. I mean, what a question, right? Lord, who has believed? I'll report. Who has believed? The gospel's preached, Lord. The word of God goes out every single day in most places. It goes out every Sunday morning. People come and they hear the word of God. They're subjected to the word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, at times, it's as if we still say, Lord, who in here has believed our report. And I would appeal to you this morning, don't be that person. Come to Christ. Don't try to figure out the decrees of God and try to see whether or not am I the elect. That's not for you to know. Those are God's dealings. Those are his secret decrees. Only God knows that. But the Bible says, repent and believe. If you can come, come. If you can come to Christ, come to Christ. You hear the gospel preached, respond. And then you are the elect. In a nutshell, Jesus, when he was referring to 
thorny ground hearers, he was talking about hardened sinners. He continues in Mark 10, 18. He says, and others are the ones sown among thorns, the seeds. They are those who hear the word. Okay, they hear it preached. They hear the word of God. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Boy, this is a, I mean, this is so applicable to our times when it seems today that most, if not many, just hear the word of God, but it, may, it has no effect upon them because they're so infatuated with the cares of this world, which are fleeting and are going to be here one moment and gone the next. You know, there's a, there's a hypnotizing effect, a spell that's attached to worldly things that make you believe that somehow by obtaining certain worldly affluence that you are going to somehow hit this nirvana. But the reality is it's deceitful. And then our hungry hunger for money, our desire to be wealthy and rich and successful and famous, these things just drown out and intoxicate us to such an extent they have a, a choking reality to them. I don't know about all of you, but have you had moments in your life where you have strayed away from the truth and you start playing with dead things and realize the reality how quickly you feel suffocated because you can never find satisfaction in these things. No matter what you run to, no matter what you go to, no matter what person you talk to, the satisfaction is never there. And this is what drives people to the brink of suicide because they can never get satisfaction. And the satisfaction that they need is a satisfaction that can only come from Christ. Because the rest, as you continue to press on, as the Bible says, they saw and they seek for this truth. You press on. It ultimately, at the end of the day, it ends up strangling the very life out of you. And you're reduced to absurdity. And we know that when God gives someone up to a debased mind, all kinds of things begin to happen. But he goes on to say, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. You're dealing with the elect and the non-elect. This is exactly the point that Paul is referring to in the opening verse in chapter 11. This is what he is dealing with in verse 7 is the elect and the non-elect. Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 3, he says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. They're blinded to that. This is what Paul said. They're blinded. They're hardened. They can't hear. God has intentionally blinded them and hardened them to this reality. In John chapter 10, 27 and 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. Notice there's no maybes here. There's no options here. He says, my sheep do hear my voice. Not that they may hear my voice, or they might hear my voice, but they will hear my voice. And you know what? And he says, I know them, and they might follow me. No. It says that they will 
follow me. You will hear Christ's voice in Scripture. And the Spirit of God in you is able to pair with that reality and know this and become a follower of Christ. And he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Here Jesus is talking about the difference from the elect and the non-elect. Here he's talking about the elect. They hear my voice. I know them. They will follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone ever be able to snatch them out of my hand. In Mark 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. But the hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not know the sheep, sees the wolf coming. And what does he do? He leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. What a, what a reprobate of a pastor. This is a just beautiful explanation of a cowardly pastor. He is a hireling. He's only in it for himself. Many of them, many pastors are only in it for what? The money, the fame, right? All the things that come with the authority, the power, you know? Uh, this, this love of self and love to be seen. This reality is what he's talking about. And then when, when tragedy comes, he books it out of there and allows the wolves to come in and devour the sheep. What a mess. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. But Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my sheep. This is a comforting reality. In the same chapter, verse 5, he says, Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You know, you see um, today, especially in American evangelicalism, you see a lot of this, like just out of nowhere. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but you see some of these posts on Facebook where out of the blue, uh, you see someone that you thought was solid, and now they're off following some magician or following some something that's totally contrary to Scripture. It's, it's, it's startling to your spirit, and, and you wonder. But the Scripture tells us very clear that the true follower of Christ will by no means, from the very voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Do you understand that? You see, the, the hireling flees from the wolf and allows his sheep to be devoured. But the true Christian doesn't do that. He flees from strangers. He flees from those that are not of Christ. And he is not chasing after all the things that are going on, especially in our day. True Christians should be following after, obviously, the Word of God, following after Christ, but they also should be known by those in whom they, they hang around with, they walk with. You, you show me your friends, a person once said, and I'll show you your future. Now, I know this sounds very self-helpish. There's a lot of truth in that. You see really quickly when you get to know people's friends, 
really what kind of person they are. This breaks down into two finishing points here for application as we close. Ultimately, number one, Paul is dealing with election. He's dealing with the hard doctrine of election. Now, it's not hard for God. It's not hard for those who are truly converted. But election is a very difficult thing. And I, I'll tell you what. I have, I have heard and I have seen people call people names that adhere to Scripture and the doctrine of election. Calling people names to such an extent that you never even call your enemies those names. I see fights that take place over these types of issues that not only saddens my heart, but I'm sure it offends God. The point is, people get offended at the doctrine of election because God chooses, not them. It really boils down to pride and them wanting to be sovereign opposed to God. They get mad. When they hear this thing, they get inwardly flustered and they don't know why. I call it the Jesus deranged symptom. You know, they hear the word of God, they hear these verses and they just, they, they get all uptight, they get worried, they start to sweat and then ultimately they start to call names. It's really an amazing thing that happens here. Paul is dealing with the doctrine of election. These, these verses and up until this point is really dealing with what is known as the order of God's decrees. The order of God's decrees, which many believe should be discussed or tampered with, that these belong to God and God alone. I understand that. I get that. I mean, these the secret decrees of God, really, we can sit there. I mean, where do we get the right to think that we can somehow figure out the secret decrees of God? And then we argue to such an extent we destroy relationships, right? That's obnoxious because really we're tampering in an area that we just don't know. Am I saying that there's an exaltation of uncertainty in Scripture? No. What I'm saying is that the Scriptures give us plenty of what God's given us His Word. He's showing us in Scripture everything that we need to know. And the, His secret decrees are His secret decrees. The doctrine of God's decree reflects the sovereignty, eternity, and omnipotence of God. So that everything that happens is according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's Ephesians 1.11 which reads, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being what? Predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of our will? No, of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be the praise of whose glory? His glory all about the glory of God. It's not about our glory. It's not about what we have done. It's completely and totally on what God has done for his own glory. Building on this insight, theologians have considered the relationship between the things God has decreed. They use a term which is called lapsarian. Lapsarian basically is a Latin term used for what we call the fall. The inception of sin. Notes that the uh, controversy tends to center on the relationship between God's decree to save some persons and God's decree to, to permit the fall and condemn sinners. These debates usually take place in the Calvinistic circles and camps opposed to like the Lutheran or Arminian. 
circles. Intramural, you know, it's, it's usually these um, ideas of election usually take place, the arguments and debates, usually within the confines of the Reformed circles. But I would like to deal with a few of these so you can kind of get an idea. I'm not trying to be lofty or throw big names up there uh, to try to sound smart or anything like that. What I basically want you to understand is that there's, there are different um, orders in which people believe how God's decrees work. And I would like to go through a couple of these with you really quick. Just to get an idea of, of election. Okay, the main criticism... Well, let's, let's go here. Since the Protestant Reformation, there's four main Lapsarian views uh, that deserve attention. The one is the first one is the Arminian order. Second one is the Emeraldian order. Third one is the Supralapsarian order, and the last one is called the Infralapsarian order. Try to say that five times fast. Okay, the main criticism of the Arminian order is that at key points, God's, God's sovereign will is replaced, hear me now, by his mere foreknowledge of human will. The result is that it renders God contingent. Man's, man's will ultimately decides who is and is not saved. This approach is contrary to the Bible's teaching that salvation ultimately results from God's will alone. If you guys want more information on these, I actually have the uh, study sheet that I worked out these on. You can, you can have that. I don't have it on me, but I can send it to you. Um, the Armoraldian uh, orders this. It's, it's a second Lapsarian view, and it seeks to mediate between the universalism of Arminianism and the Bible's teaching of predestination. What I mean about when I say, does anyone understand what universalism is? Universalism, basically everybody is going to be saved. But in this context, it's called hypocritical. It's called, it basically, it's, it's, it's hypocritical universalism. And what that is, it's, it's where we all know that everyone's not saved, right? There's people in hell right now. So everybody isn't saved. So this idea of this gospel um, that an Arminian view proposes to the world is that the death of Christ doesn't save men but it makes men savable. In other words, you're savable, but you're not saved. And this is the idea that men, there's a, somehow there's a neutral stance there that somehow within the context of God's decrees, when Christ bore the full weight of God's wrath for his people, he dies, it says, for many. He absorbed the full wrath upon himself as the substitute, the vicarious atonement. He paid the price for those people that he died for covenantally, went to the grave covenantally with the Father that he had made, went there and rose again, sealing his elect, sealing the remnant in which he died for. He didn't just make people say it savable. He saved them in the atonement. Those in whom Christ died, rest assured, will be saved. Armoraldianism arranges the order of God's decrees in order to support what is called basically what I've already told you, a hypothetical universalism. Here God decreed that Christ would die for all men and then decreed the election of only some fallen men to believe and to be saved. In other words, it's the nature of the atonement. 
that when Christ died, He died for all sin. Makes sense, right? We hear Christ died for all sin. This is what He's dealing with here. But in that process, within that decree, even though Christ died for all sin, He still selected those in whom would be saved. Armoralianism is a theological system created by uh, a, a man by the name of uh, Moses Armorald, which modified traditional Calvinistic teachings on God's eternal decrees, removing the decree of reprobation. Armoraldianism is also known as four-point, you've heard of this before, four-point Calvinism, in that it denies limited atonement, the teaching that Jesus only bore the sin of the elect, which is really particular redemption, that Jesus' atonement was just for those in whom were the elect, those for whom he died, those in whom he had chose. Those are those in whom he died for. And we don't know that. So the pride comes when people start saying, well, how do I know if I'm the elect? And they want to get into all these, um, they want to split hairs over the elect. But the reality is, once again, these decrees are not for you to know. But we do know that the gospel is to be preached to all people everywhere. And it is God who saves. You don't save them. You don't talk them into a sinner's prayer. You don't convince them like a car salesman to come to Christ. You don't appeal to the selfish, sinful nature of humanity to get them to buy in to your gospel. You preach the truth, the word of God, and God in his sovereignty and power saves those who are his. Which brings us to the last, uh, is the superlapsarianism and the infralapsarianism. And once again, I apologize, this seems a little bit heavy, but it's important to know these things. Um, Superlapsarianism really is supra, which really means above and beginning, almost like preeminent, before the fall, even before creation. Um, God had considered the elect into salvation before the foundation of the world. Now there's problems with this, you see. There's problems with this. Because what they believe is, how can you bring reprobation upon someone who hasn't yet even existed? Who hasn't sinned against God yet? How can you bring the wrath of God or reprobation against something, or I'm sorry, someone before they're even created? So this is, the, this is the belief that God, before anything, before he even created anything, God himself had already chosen his elect. Those that would be saved, those that would be damned. It's really what many call double predestination. And there were some believers, I think it was Whitfield believed in that. There, there are those <clears throat> few people still hold to this view. Um, critics of superlapsarianism argue that by placing the decree of election and reprobation before the decree of the fall, it presents God as choosing persons for eternal condemnation without the prior consideration of divine justice. And in it an advantage of the supralapsarian view is that it fully honors the scriptural language of God predestinating the elect apart from any condition or qualification. It also provides a unified cause and effect relationship to the decrees of God as a whole, with, with each item finding its rationale in what proceeds. In particular, God's decree of the fall is explained in the antecedent decree of election and reprobation. Very popular view of the high Calvinist or what we would call hyper-Calvinists, which is a derogatory statement against high Calvinists who believe this. And they, you know, they, they believe that the wrath of God was never against God's elect. Never against God's elect. But those of us know who's God's elect, 
I know what a vile, rotten, filthy scumbag I was before Christ saved me. I knew the wrath of God was against me. And I know I am saved and born again and made new. This reality that God's wrath was against me. I was a sinner. I was an enemy of God at one time. I can't say, no, I was never once an enemy of God, as this camp would declare. So anyways, there's a lot to go into. We're not going to be able to even scratch the surface on that today, but just so you get a general understanding. Uh, basically, God determines who will be saved either way. You know, the, the uh, infralapsarianism says that, you know, that God decreed the fall, and after the fall had happened, out of that lump, God chose for his people some he would save and some that would be condemned. And this really is more of the view uh, that's taken on by a majority of the Reformed camp. They believe that once, once sin came into the world, once the fall happened, it was at that point that God chose for him a people for himself, and a people demonstrated his, his righteous by in his condemnation of the damned. Basically, you know, if you want to just boil this all down, you feel more confused than ever now. I'm sorry about that. But basically, God determines who will be saved either way. Just remember that. You can take that to the bank. Romans 9.18 shows this. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me, then why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for his glory. Second, Point, last point is that with our application, Paul shows the signs and marks of those who are false compared to those who are true. Romans 11 8 says, Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that should not see and ears that cannot hear to this very day. Basically, what he's saying is he deals with the whole idea of election, but then he deals with the reality and behavior and characteristics of the unelect, uh, the lost. The unbeliever and, and, and the behavior patterns, what you see from someone that does not know God. The spirit of stupor really alludes to Isaiah when he really deals with this reality of numbness resulting from the sting of wrath. The Greek carries the idea of a cause, a spirit which causes numbness. Stupor is a deadness towards God's grace. God rejected Israel corporately as a nation because of this. But the Bible says this, before we lay, the, we don't want to lay the judgment of sin against God because the Bible doesn't. The Bible says that the light has come into the world and people loved, loved by the way, I want to make that known, that the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Showing the nature of the sinner, that the nature of the sinner hates God. The nature of the sinner loves darkness. And he won't come to the light. Why? Because he doesn't want his evil deeds exposed. He hates the light. Loves the darkness. It's the nature of fallen creation to love the darkness. Darkness hides us. Darkness keeps us hidden from reality. 
Romans 11, 9 says, and David says, let the table become a snare and a trap, <clears throat> a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, blind and bow down their back always. These are blind and hardened by God. And this reality is, is shown in Scripture. In 1 Timothy 4, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, which were never of the faith, the Bible says, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. In Matthew 27, 18, it says, For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. He knew that Christ, Pontius Pilate, had known that Christ had been delivered for the simple reality of envy, hatred. This is the deceitfulness we're talking about. This is a reality. This is a, this is a manifestation of a vile, wicked heart in action. They weren't godly people. They did not know God. They didn't follow after God. They rejected Christ. They hated him and they wanted to kill him out of envy. In John 9:44, Jesus even said to them, "You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want, you desire to do." He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and a father of it. Jesus went on again to confront those of his day who thought that they were the people of God. He says, you search the scriptures for in them you think through all of your searching, you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come that you may have life. The Bible says that the end of the law is Christ. But not for them. Not for them. They testified of him. But yet they would not come. They were not willing, it says, to come. This is why we need to cry out to God and say, God, make us willing in the day of your power. They would, they would come. They resisted it. They rejected him. There he was, the very door of eternal life. A.W. Tozer said, in dealing with the church, he said, it is my opinion that tens of thousands, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, and they have not been saved. Scary. In fact, the Bible says that your faith actually overcomes the world. One, one point to make is, in reality, the fact that you have been converted and truly saved, that your faith overcomes worldliness. It is written in 1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. In Galatians 5, 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, Selfish ambition, dissensions and heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he goes on to say, but the fruit of the Spirit, this reality that you have been converted, that you truly are God's elect, 
that God has chosen you and made you new and has transformed you, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are of Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Conclusion. What then? What is the conclusion of all of this? Israel had never obtained what it seeked, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Are you blinded this morning? Is your heart hardened or calloused? Are you under a stupor, covered as it is in a veil of darkness? You sense a coldness and a cutting off from God. I know even at times of being a believer, there are times that we can, we can lose our way, we can slide off the tracks for a while, and life is just miserable. But I'd appeal to you if you do not know the Christ of Scripture to repent of your sin. Trust in Him. Throw yourself down upon Him. Call upon His name and He will save you. 2 Corinthians 3.16 I'll leave you with this. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for our time together this morning, Lord. Lord, You are God. And if we agree with that statement, then we have to submit to the reality that you are in control of all things, even the salvation of mankind. Lord, you are in control of every minute detail of our lives. And the Bible says, Lord, that you have bought and purchased us, that we are twice owned, once in creation and once in redemption. That we don't even own the very thoughts that we think, that everything must be given to you. We must worship the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, have your way today. If there's anybody in here today who has not turned, that are still under a veil of darkness, whose heart is hardened through deceit or rebellion or the love of this world, cause them by your power, Lord, to turn that the veil may be removed, that they can see their Lord and Savior as Isaiah did high and lifted up. Lord, make yourself known today in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brother Jeff. Praise God for that.